We are slowing down in our Genesis series to take a look at the famous Ten Commandments, that set of timeless and perfect moral laws that God gave to Moses at Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 20. And today we're going to take a look at the first two commandments. You shall have no other gods before me and the command to not worship idols. But before we get into that, I just want to address two common misconceptions that many people have about the law. We're taking a look at the law in depth. Some of this might be repetitive, but it's so that we really, really grasp and understand these concepts. They're so central to understanding the Old Testament, the whole Bible, and the gospel. So firstly, whether consciously or unconsciously, there are both Christians and non-believers who view the Ten Commandments as a way to impress God or as some sort of moral measuring stick that can be used to prove that they're a good person. Hey, listen, I live my life by the Ten Commandments. Uh, I, I obey all the universal moral laws, things like the Ten Commandments. I'm a good person. I don't commit adultery. You know, I don't, I don't steal. I don't murder. But as we've talked about before, it really falls apart when you read what Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount. We talked about this last week. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, which means empty head, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. And then later on, Jesus says, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. You see, from God's perspective, what is right and what is wrong extends all the way to our thoughts and our motives. And the point that Jesus was making when he taught this was very, very simple. Anyone who thinks they're keeping the Ten Commandments is wrong. You're just not doing it. Romans 3.23 tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And James 2.10 tells us that because God's standard is perfection, breaking just one of the commandments is as bad as breaking all of them from God's perspective. Imagine finding yourself in a lifeboat because your cruise ship has struck a reef and begun sinking. So you get out, you get into the lifeboat, safely make it off the main vessel. But but then you notice that one of the wooden boards that line the bottom, the hull of the boat, is a little bit sketchy. Nine out of 10 of these wooden boards look great, pristine condition, but but one of them is kind of rotten and, and, and water seeping in. It's actually seeping in pretty fast. You know, in that situation, nobody is going to say, hey, man, listen, relax. Nine out of the 10 boards are great. This boat is 90% structurally sound. But thank goodness, because all of a sudden you hear a helicopter whirling overhead and they've come to rescue you, which is just as well, because you've noticed that there are shark fins beginning to circle your boat. And so the helicopter lowers a rope. It's got a chain attached to the end, which is then attached to this cradle-like device for people to climb into and be lifted up into the helicopter. And so you push your way past the woman and the children, and you climb into the cradle. And as it starts pulling you up, you look down and you sigh with relief that you're leaving those sharks behind. And that's when, when you're about 100 feet into the air, 
you notice that one of the 10 links of chain that connect the cradle to the rope is cracked and is about to break. In that situation, it doesn't matter that the other nine links are rock solid. If one is busted, you're toast. And James 2.10 tells us that's the deal with the law of God. You break one, it's as bad as breaking them all from God's perspective because his standard is perfection. The Ten Commandments do not allow you to impress God or make yourself look good because you can't keep them. The Apostle Paul tells us that the law is a tutor designed to instruct us in the truth that we are sinners in need of a Savior because we cannot meet God's perfect standard of holiness. The law is a teacher designed to teach us the lesson that we cannot be good enough for God on our own. We need a Savior. That's the lesson. Write this down. We cannot impress God by keeping the Ten Commandments because we cannot keep the Ten Commandments. And this actually leads into the second misconception that many have about the Ten Commandments, the law of God. There are some who will say, listen, I'm with you, Jeff, 100% with you. The law has tutored me. It has done its job. It's led me to Jesus. So, so now I'm done with the law. I can just ignore, ignore the Ten Commandments. Law has done its job. Well, in that same Sermon on the Mount, Jesus also said this, He said, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one yote or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So in other words, Jesus says, the law, the Ten Commandments, the law of God, it it has a place to play till everything is done in this age, till, till the earth is done away with. And there's new heavens and a new earth. The law of God, the Ten Commandments, has its place. And it says, listen, even in the New Covenant, the New Testament, in the church, Anyone who goes around teaching that these things don't matter, that it doesn't matter that we obey the law of God at all, that it's irrelevant, that person, they're going to be in heaven, but they're going to be the least in heaven. God's not really impressed with that. But the one, even in the New Testament, the new covenant who encourages people and teaches people to obey the law of God, hey, That blesses the heart of God. That's going to be rewarded in eternity. Now, I want to be really clear. We're not saying that the law has any bearing on our salvation. It has nothing to do with whether we get to heaven or not. We're saved by our faith in Jesus. But there is a way that God desires us to live as representatives of him so that we treat each other well and so that we can build the kind of church where we actually love one another and treat each other the right way. The Ten Commandments still provide guidelines that matter. They're absolutely timeless and perfect. Jesus said, I came to fulfill the law, not to destroy it. And indeed he did. He lived a perfect life. He fulfilled the law perfectly, not only himself, but also on our behalf. So we're not trying to follow the law so that we can fulfill it. Jesus has done that. We're not trying to do it so that we can be perfect. Jesus has already been perfect. 
But Jesus says the law has a place till the days and the age of the earth is done. As we learned last week, we're dead to the law because Jesus died in our place. And we've also fulfilled the law because Jesus fulfilled it in our place. But the law of God still stands as God's standard of holiness for human beings. It still convicts people who have not placed their faith in Jesus. And for the believer, as I said, the Ten Commandments still show us what it looks like to live a life that's led by the Holy Spirit. Please understand me. The believer's salvation is not at risk. We're not meant to live by the law. We're meant to live by the Spirit. But let me ask you this. How do we know what the leading of the Holy Spirit feels like? I could do a whole sermon on this, but many, many Christians do not learn the difference between the voice of the Holy Spirit and their emotions. Many people think that that whatever they're feeling, this must be the Holy Spirit, and they don't know the difference between the voice of their emotions and the voice of the Holy Spirit. So how do you learn the difference? You learn the difference in the word of God. You learn about who the Lord is. You learn about what his character is like. And as you do that, you begin to know what the voice of the Lord, the voice of the Spirit sounds like. And the New Testament is full of commands and instructions for living so that we might learn what the Holy Spirit's voice sounds like so that we will not be confused whether it is the Holy Spirit speaking or our emotions. Addressing the subject of commandments, Jesus said this, Matthew 22, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Jesus said, listen, this is the whole law and everything that God spoke through the prophets in the Old Testament in a nutshell. Love God with everything you have and love other people as much as you love yourself. What the Ten Commandments, the law of God, and and, and all the commandments in the New Testament do is give us examples of what it looks like practically to love God and love people in the way that Jesus was talking about. All these commandments in the New Testament, they're helping us understand what it looks like to do that. In fact, the first four commandments of the Ten Commandments are about loving God, And the next six are all about loving people, what that looks like. And I need to be real clear about something here. An essential part of the Christian life is obeying Jesus. It's obeying Jesus. Would you write this down and then we'll unpack it. Jesus expects those who call him Lord to obey him as Lord. He expects those who call him Lord to obey him as as Lord. And this is a big concept I want to get across. There's some Christians who will say, oh, oh, because we're dead to the law, we can just do whatever we want. Jesus can save me from hell, but I can still go on living my life any way I want. But Jesus expects those who call him Lord to obey him as Lord, as master, because it will make you righteous. No, Jesus has already done that. Jesus expects us to obey him because it's the outward evidence of his internal lordship over our lives. Let me say that again. Our obedience to Jesus is the outward evidence of his internal lordship over our lives. It's the outward evidence that he is reigning on the inside of us over our lives. Jesus himself was very, very clear repeatedly that it means nothing if a person calls him Lord, 
but doesn't actually seek to live in obedience to him. Again, I'm not talking about perfection. I'm talking about there being no confusion who is the one who rules over our lives. No confusion. In John's gospel, let me read you some of what Jesus says. It's on your outlines. He says, if you love me, keep my commandments. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. And then Jesus said, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. The issue is not perfection. The issue is not trying to do good works in our own strength, in the flesh. The issue is that those who really love Jesus will have the desire to obey him, will want to obey Jesus. And by the power of the Holy Spirit in us, there will be observable, demonstrable examples of our obedience to Jesus in our lives that other people can see, even though it's not gonna be perfect obedience. The issue is that those who belong to Jesus want to obey him, and there'll be evidence in their lives that they want to obey him. Obedience is the fruit. It's the evidence of salvation. It's not the cause of salvation. It's the evidence. It's a byproduct of genuine salvation. And the epistle of James is all about that. If you ever want to dig into that some more in your own time, let there be no confusion. Jesus expects those who love him to obey him. Even in the famous great commission, Jesus tells his disciples, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the father and of the son and of the Holy spirit. And then what does Jesus say? Teaching them these new disciples you make, this is what you should be doing. Teaching them to observe or obey all things that I have commanded you. Teach them to obey my commandments. Teach people how to walk in obedience to me. That's what we're to be doing with new believers. That's what pastors are to be doing with their congregations, teaching and helping them to obey Jesus, leading, exhorting, encouraging them to obey Jesus. As I mentioned earlier, obedience provides external evidence of the internal reign of Jesus in our lives. But obedience to Jesus is also the best way to live. John the Apostle wrote this, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. You see, John actually says that one of the ways we experience the love of God and enjoy a life of freedom is by keeping his commandments. Well, how does that work? It's because God's commandments are not designed to restrict us. They're designed to protect us from things that would cause us hurt and pain. God's commandments are designed to help us experience the best version of our lives. And the Lord knows what he's talking about because he's the one who created us. He knows what makes us happy. He knows what brings us peace. He knows how we can have the best version of our marriage. He knows the best way to parent. He knows the best way to problem solve, the best way to manage money, the best way to balance your work and family and rest life. He knows. He knows all of it because he knows how we're wired. And as we do things God's way, keeping with his design, we experience the blessings that he intends for us. We experience that as an expression of his love. It's the love of God for us to live in obedience to his commandments. His law restricts us in the same way that a guardrail restricts visitors on the edge of a cliff at the Grand Canyon. And do you know that pretty much every year, 
people die at the Grand Canyon because they decide to go look over the edge of a cliff that has no guardrail? Do you know what takes away your freedom, your freedom more than a guardrail? Death. Death takes away a whole lot of freedom. The Lord's restrictions really provide us with freedom because when we live by them, there are dangers that we don't even have to worry about, difficult decisions we don't have to stress over, pain and anxiety that we get to completely avoid. And again, please keep in mind, the Lord knows us. Man, the Lord knows you. He knows you better than you know yourself. And we might think we're so upright and noble and pure and incorruptible that that we don't need any restrictions. But hey, the Lord knows our hearts. He knows my heart. He knows your heart. And he says, listen, Jeff, there's some stuff you just got to stay away from because all it leads to is hurt and pain for you and other people. I won't ask for a show of hands, but I know that Almost all of us have learned that lesson the hard way. If we've been walking with the Lord for a while, haven't we? We've all ended up in bad situations and then later thought to ourselves, why didn't I just listen to the Lord? Why didn't I just take the advice of scripture? It would have avoided all of this. So write this down. God's commandments are for our good. They're for our good. They're to bless us and enable us to experience his love in all areas of life. And that concludes my introduction. So perhaps you can see why we're hanging out in this chapter for a few weeks. Keep in mind now, when the Lord is giving the law to the Israelites, there are people who are only a couple of months removed from slavery in Egypt, where they've been in bondage for for generations. The people who are leaving Egypt, they were all born into slavery. They think like Egyptians. They think like slaves. In other words, they don't even know how they should think. They don't know how to think like a free people. They don't know how to consider one another instead of just themselves. They don't know what it means to be God's people. And so God gives them these commandments, these laws, in part as an anchor, as a tether for what is true and good to help them build individual lives and collective lives as a society that are blessed and filled with good things. That's what God is doing. This is a blessing that he's giving to them. So starting in Exodus 20, verse one, just read with me. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And then he's saying now, now, because you know that, because you understand who I am, because you've seen what I've done for you in light of that. Now God gives the first commandment in light of what I've done for you, Verse three, you shall have no other gods before me. The original language there means in my presence. You'll have no other gods in my presence. So God is saying, I am to be the absolute highest priority in your life. But he's also saying, I'm to be the only God in your life. It's about position and it's about exclusivity. And God makes that claim because among all the gods, he is unique. He's unique. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. He's the alpha and the omega. He's the only God who is omnipotent, omnipresent, and omniscient. There's no God like him. And most importantly, he's the only God who rescues and redeems. And then the second commandment is really an extension of the first commandment. In verse 4, he says, You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath, or in the waters below, you shall not bow down to them or worship them. Here's what God is getting at. 
there's one throne. There's one throne in each of our lives. And at any given moment, that throne is occupied by someone or something. To view it another way, there is always something or someone that is the highest priority in our lives. And when we make decisions regarding our time, our money, our talents, our future, our family, there is something that figures into our decision-making first and foremost. It's the first filter that the decision goes through. God says, I am to be the one on the throne of your life. I'm to be the king of your life. I am to be the highest priority in your life. I am to be the filter through which you make your decisions and plan your future. That's what it means for him to be our God. And when anything else takes that place, which belongs to God, that thing or that person becomes the God we worship. It becomes an idol in our lives. It becomes a false God. Make a note of this. Our God is whatever has highest priority in our lives and sits on the throne of our lives. Our God is whatever has highest priority in our lives and sits on the throne of our lives. One of the interesting things about the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, is that it clearly implies that there are other gods. If there weren't other gods, there would be no need for that command, right? but it implies there clearly are other gods. And if you're familiar with the Bible, this shouldn't be shocking to you at all. In his epistles, the apostle Paul calls these other gods principalities and powers. They are spiritual forces that are opposed to Yahweh. They are opposed to Jesus. That is why no other religion in the ancient world, in the world at this time, forbade the worshiping of other gods. It was a radical thing when God gave Israel the first commandment. It was unheard of at this time for a religion to be exclusive, for a religion to say, you must only worship our God. And that's because when it comes to the spiritual world, the Bible is very plain that there are only two sides. There's Yahweh, there's God, and then there's everything else. And so if you're worshiping a God who's part of everything else, that God is completely cool with you worshiping a whole bunch of other gods because they're really all playing for the same team, team anti-God. When Jesus was ministering on the earth, he said this about all teachers, all religions, and all belief systems that had existed on the earth up to that time. He said, most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Jesus said, there's me and then there's everyone else. I'm the only way. I'm the only one who saves. Everyone who came before me teaching some other way was a thief and a robber. They're all on the same team and they're all liars. They're all robbers. Who are these other gods? Well, in the ancient world, the gods all represented some human desire. And so the gods you worshiped were dictated by the desires you wanted to pursue in your life. You had Baal who stood for power. You had Ashtaroth who stood for sex, Moloch for pragmatism and success, and on and on and on we could go through the pantheon of the gods of the ancient world. And these same gods show up with different names, across the ancient world in different mythologies. And I suggest to you in the modern world today, 
You see, the supernatural worldview the Bible teaches is that there are specific gods, specific principalities, demonic entities behind these false gods. There is a God behind lust. There is a God behind money. And these gods simply change their form and name across times and cultures, but make no mistake, they're the same gods. And people are still bowing down to their idols and these false gods today. And Yahweh still says, don't, don't worship those gods, not even a little bit. Don't bow down to them. Don't let them into your home as idols. Worship me and me alone. Now, why does God say that? Why does he demand this type of exclusive worship? What does the Bible say to praise him over 2,000 times? I mean, if he's God and he lacks nothing, why does he need our worship? Why does he command us to worship him? Is he insecure? Is he conceited and vain? Why does he care if we worship other gods in addition to him? Write this down. We'll talk about it. It's because the truth is that we're always worshiping something. We are always worshiping something. Even if you think, I'm not. Jeff, I'm totally independent. I have my own thoughts. I, I have no God. All that means is that you worship yourself. You are the one on the throne of your life. You're ruling your life and you bow down to your own thoughts, your own judgments, and your own desires. You're just worshiping yourself. Every one of us is worshiping someone or something at all times. That's just the reality of the situation. And here's what David wrote in Psalm 135. It's on your outlines. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Now underline this last part here. Those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts in them. You see, David writes about a profound truth that I want you to write down on your outlines here. This is the truth. We become like that which we worship. We become like that which we worship. The object we worship affects who we are and who we are becoming. And David says, all other gods are ultimately dead. They're lifeless. They're empty. And those who spend their lives bowing down to them will find themselves empty because there will be no life in them. It's a principle that's inarguable because we all intrinsically know it to be true. Deep down, we all understand that who we are and who we are becoming is shaped by the things we prioritize the most in our lives. We all know this. It's obvious. The things we worship is how the Bible would say it. Our heavenly father doesn't need our worship. He doesn't need anything. There's not an itch that he needs scratched, but he is our heavenly father and he loves us with a perfect love. And he knows how we were created because he's the one who created us and he created us for a relationship with him. He knows how we're wired and he knows that we're wired to always be worshiping something, pursuing something. So what would a perfectly good and loving God, think with me here, what would a perfectly good and a perfectly loving God call us to then do? 
Where would he call us to direct our worship? Knowing that we're all going to be worshiping something, what would a good and loving God call us to worship? Very simple. He would call us to worship the thing or the one that is going to fulfill us the most. The thing where if we were to become more like it, it would be good for us. The best thing for us. He would call us to worship the thing or the one that's going to satisfy the most, the one that is most desirable to become like. And that one is him, is him. There's nothing like him. God commands us to worship him exclusively because he is the best, most satisfying, most rewarding, most fulfilling thing in existence. If he allowed us to worship anything less than him, he would be allowing us to settle for something inferior and something that's ultimately empty. And that wouldn't be very good of him. And so out of love for us, the Lord says, worship me and worship me alone. Write this down. God commands us to worship him because he is the best thing for us. God commands us to worship him because he is the best thing for us. And now we get to the essence of the Ten Commandments. You see, their essence is not about behavior. The essence of the Ten Commandments is about belief. The Ten Commandments concern external behaviors that reveal internal beliefs external behaviors that reveal internal beliefs. And in these first two commandments, our obedience reveals that we believe God is the best thing for us to worship, the most beautiful and rewarding thing in existence, the most worthy object of our worship. Conversely, when we worship false gods and we bow down to idols in our lives, we are revealing a belief that they will bless and satisfy our lives more than God can. That's why this matters so much. And we're gonna find this principle to be true in all of the 10 commandments. They're all external behaviors that reveal internal beliefs. And for that reason, I, I would be remiss if I did not call us to some serious introspection at this point. You and I need to be sure that we are not habitually worshiping false gods or bowing down to idols. Hey, we all sin. None of us is perfect. But there's a difference between having God as your God, being clear in your understanding that he deserves to be first in all things in your life, and doing everything you can to make it so. Changing things in your life when you realize they need to be changed. Restructuring your life when you realize the need for that. There's a difference between that and habitually, as a habit, as your norm, on an ongoing basis, having things in your life that take priority over God. There's a difference. When God's will comes up against your will, who wins? Who wins? When you realize there's something that the Bible teaches that you're not doing, is your response, hey, listen, I need to make some changes in my life? Or is your response, you know, that would mean changing some things that I don't really want to change. So I guess I'm just not going to do that. When God's will forces you to choose between obeying him or money, who do you choose? Who do you bow down to? When it's him or, or kids sports, who's your God? When it's him or your career, who's your God? When it's him or sexual pleasure, who wins? When it's him or getting more stuff done, what do you choose? I'm not talking about perfection. 
I'm talking about decision-making and the way we structure our lives. Is God the highest priority in our decision-making and planning? Are we building lives that make it obvious externally that Jesus is on the throne of our lives internally? Listen, church, if the Holy Spirit is illuminating things in your life right now, if he's putting a finger on an area of your life and saying this needs to change, you need to listen. You need to listen. You need to obey because we are to have no other gods before him. We are not to worship idols. As Jesus said, we are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all of your mind. And as best we can, We are to structure our lives in such a way that we actually do that. If God is highlighting an area of your life that needs to change, obey him, obey him. He is our God and we worship him. We bow down to him. I want to talk just a little more about how we become like that which we worship. It's a natural principle. It's a principle of sowing and reaping, a natural consequence of where we direct our worship. But there's also more to that. I believe that the scriptures make it clear that God himself oversees this principle. He puts it in place. I've shared before how I find Romans 1 to contain some of the most terrifying text in all the Bible. Because in it, God describes how he affects the minds and the thinking of those who continually reject him as God and instead embrace false gods and idols. And what God says is that he will make it so that those who worship false gods become like them. All these false gods demand sacrifice. And so God says, if you worship the God of power and you sacrifice to him, you'll get what you want. You'll get power at all costs and nothing else. No satisfaction. It'll never be enough. You'll get no joy. You'll get no rest. You'll get no peace because you'll sacrifice all that to worship the God of power. If you choose to sacrifice at the altar of lust and sex, you'll get it, but you'll get nothing else. You'll never have a meaning, meaningful, lasting, satisfying human relationship. You'll sacrifice that at the altar. That's the deal with money, careers, fame, you name it. If you sacrifice your life at that altar, you'll get it, but make no mistake, it'll be a sacrifice. It'll cost you. So starting in verse 18 of Romans 1, we read, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them for God has shown it to them For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Paul's saying that God gave all of us a conscience, an internal awareness of God, and God gave us creation to give us an external awareness of him. But people choose to ignore both. Verse 21, because although they knew God, They did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools 
and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. People willingly embrace foolish thoughts so that they can dismiss the reality of God. And eventually they start to actually believe the lies that they tell themselves. And that's the scary part. People start to actually believe that they should be worshiping the earth instead of looking to the one who created it. They actually start to lose their rational and logical thought, their ability to think with clarity about truth. They become untethered from the truth as they dismiss the only one who is the truth. Verse 24, therefore, so because they've willingly made this choice, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who's blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. So in other words, God just gives them what they want. They wanted to ignore the reality of God and dismiss God so that they could live their lives how they want and pursue their lusts and their desires. So God says, you know what? If that's what you want, I'm going to let that actually make sense to you. I'm going to let that actually seem like a wise way to live to you so that you can have as much of it as you want. Skipping down to verse 28. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Now that's not addressed to the believer. That is addressed to the unbeliever who refuses to acknowledge God. And God declares that those who repeatedly reject him, even when they know who's real, those who reject him so that they can worship false gods and idols, and sacrifice at those altars, they will eventually lose their grip on reality. They won't be able to think clearly. And even as their lives fall apart, as they sacrifice everything at the altars of these false gods, they'll simply blindly keep pursuing them. They'll just keep bowing down. They won't even have enough clarity of thought and mind to recognize that it's never giving them the satisfaction that they're craving. That's scary stuff. Now on the other side, those who give their lives to the Lord, those who desire to obey Jesus, who seek to live by the first two commandments, those who pursue the true and living God will find themselves on a track to becoming more like him. And he promises that one day that process will be complete. We will actually become like Jesus one day. And to help that process along, God put his spirit in everyone who worships him. And his spirit goes to work in our lives, making us more like God, empowering that process, driving that process. And what is God like? What is Jesus like? Well, the Bible says that God is love. What kind of love? The true kind. The kind Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 13, it's on your outlines. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, 
believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, love never fails. Paul tells us that as God's spirit works in our lives, making us more like him, it produces these types of things. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You see, we sometimes think that serving God and, and living his way is a sacrifice. But in reality, we are sacrificing far more for far less any time we worship something other than him. I'm going to wrap up with this. Hey, right now we're all worshiping something. We're all worshiping something. We're all worshiping someone. And whatever we're worshiping is profoundly affecting who we are and what we are becoming. That's happening in each of our lives right now. There's only one who's worthy of our worship. There's only one who has the power to save and the power to redeem. And there's only one who has saved and redeemed us. There's only one who is love. There's only one who satisfies. Every other God, every other idol is a thief and a robber. They are empty. They are empty. So church, worship God. Worship him only. Purge your life of idols. Deal with them ruthlessly. Destroy them. And pursue loving the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. Hey, with that, let's pray together. Would you bow your head and close your eyes wherever you're at? Father, we just ask right now by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would put your finger on any idols, any false gods in our lives, whether it's ourselves, our own will, or or some other love or passion or desire that we're elevating above you. Father, would you just reveal it with absolute clarity because we love you. And because we love you, we want to obey you. Father, I pray for those who are recognizing right now that you want something to change in their lives. Father, I pray that you would give us boldness to obey, boldness to make whatever changes in our lives need to be made, and that our love for you would be greater than our love for whatever that false God or idol is, that we would structure our lives so that you are our God in all times and all moments as much as we possibly can. Father, calm any anxiety or fear that anyone may have about making those changes. Calm that anxiety with the assurance that you're better, that your love is better than whatever that thing is. Your love is joy and peace and hope and life, Lord God. It is full of good things. Hey, thanks for being with us for this study. Before you go, I want to invite you to join us every Sunday at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for our new live online service. This is something we've just started offering because of COVID-19, and it's a great way to join with our church from your home in worshiping and studying God's Word every week. You'll find everything you need on our website at mynewhope.ca. And hey, if you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to that website, mynewhope.ca, right now, because when you get there, you're going to see a button that says the gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So go to the website, click on the gospel. 
If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. It's a huge encouragement to us. So shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through the teaching of his word. If you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. And then finally, I want to invite you to follow us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash mynewhope.ca. I know a bunch of people don't use Facebook right now, but it really is the best tool we have for getting you updates and encouragements throughout the week. So I hope you'll join us on there. Hey, I love you, Uppercase C Church. Be blessed.